0: The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. My name is George Hinman, and I am one of the pastors here. And I've I've been able to be at Convergence once before. Some of you uh, probably, no doubt, are new since then. Uh, But it's an honor for me to be here. You guys actually sound very good singing, playing. As I was sitting there, I thought, how about Convergence the Album? <laughs> it could be right around the corner, don't you think? And, and I, immediately what happened to me as I thought about that is I thought, I know what this means. This means I won't be able to drive the, the good car. Because one of our cars has a CD player, and any time I bring home an album, my wife is very interested, so she'll be driving the car for the next few weeks until <laughs> she's tired of the CD then I get my car back. Because uh, I do drive the good car. It's a stick shift, and it's just the right thing to do. <clears throat> Are we recording this? Does this go on the web? <laughs> i got to be careful with the microphone. So, um, love you can see. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what good love is if you can't see it. What, what good would love be if you can't see it? Um, people promise that they love us. They tell us that they love us. They encourage us to love them. I just don't know what it is if you can't see it. And Advent is an experience that God gives us in visible love. He lets us see love. Aren't you glad that God doesn't just sit up in the clouds with a megaphone and says, You little people, this is the way to do your lives right. I mean, what would happen if that were his attitude? What would happen if if that's the way Revelation worked? Maybe He would send an angel or a prophet, um, I don't know, leaflets. Somehow, cross that barrier between divinity and humanity. It's an infinite barrier. And I imagine that, you know, God certainly could have done that in a lot of different ways without doing what He did. I think, you know, you'd, you'd say, fine for you to give me orders. But who are you? You don't know my life. Okay. So if I were a pastor and if I had a teenage son right now, I I have a friend who's a pastor who has a teenage son. And uh, and the the teenage son says, but when he's not getting his homework done, you know, Dad, you don't know what I'm going through. I go, okay, I've gone to school several times. In my life. More, more years than I want to admit. And I've taken a lot of tests. I know what it's like to take a test. I know what it's like to be under pressure. No, 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 not at my school. Not in my class. Not as me. You know. And, you know, eventually he gets me. He goes, oh, you're right. I really, I can't, you know, I don't know all that. And we'd say that to God, wouldn't we? We'd say, God, you don't know what it's like to live in the 21st century, uh, in Seattle with my problems, my stuff. You don't know. And, and yet, um, we can't say that to our God. We can't. Because somewhere along the way, in the infinite uh, love and wisdom and majesty and grace of God, uh, this divine being said, I am going to enter time and space, and I'm going to walk a path of suffering. And I'm going to suggest, subject myself to the pain and the sorrow and the brokenness and the grief of even death and judgment. So that even the worst of all things, something that has never happened to you, the Father turns away from the Son on the cross. God has been sustaining me my whole life, giving me every breath, watching me day and night. But Jesus Christ suffered that moment of pure rejection from his Father. That's what they agreed to do. It's hard to talk about the mystery of the Trinity, but uh, this is love that we can see. So that's what the incarnation uh, is about. It's about being able to see spiritual reality in your own life so that when you are tempted or struggle or fail or uh, are stressed, disoriented, have no idea what the future will bring, there is one to whom you can look who understands. And and you can understand him by seeing someone who... uh, speaks your language as a human, and that's Jesus Christ. I was uh, reading recently about St. Nicholas, you know, Santa Claus. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think I've heard the story before, and you probably have too, but I couldn't remember where that comes from. It's all accretions uh, of legend that uh, creep up. But the, the, the thing that gets the legend started is is something about 312, somewhere, I forget the dates, about 300 years after Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, Uh, A man who lived in a monastery um, wanted to be poor, but inherited a bunch of money. And he heard about someone in the village nearby, a father who had three daughters. And you know what a dowry is? Dowry is the money that parents have to pony up to marry off their daughter. It's it's kind of a weird custom. Um, And it didn't work in my case, actually. Uh, I was thinking about this. Um, my wife is an extremely generous person and she had, uh, her dad, her dad had died in a plane crash when she was 12 and, and had inherited some insurance money. And so somebody had put it in an investment account and she was, and it had a checking thing on it. So when we got married, we, you know, merged our finances and I looked, she had been donating money. Uh, she was a little older, I was a little older when we got married. She had been donating money and she was thousands of dollars in debt, <laughs> didn't know it. So I got, I was like, this is the dowry. She was writing on margin. She didn't know, know what margin was. You know, so we had to call the broker and say, we have a little problem here. <laughs> we haven't been reading our bank statements for the past 10 years. So I love, I hope that's being recorded. <laughs> so that, that's very handy, by the way. You want to pay attention to some of that stuff early in your marriage. Um, where was I going? Oh, yeah. The dowry. So apparently, this father with these three daughters says, "I'm going to have to sell my daughters into slavery because I don't have a dowry." And um, I'm thinking, Anne's probably wondering, "Well, what's the difference in my case?" You know. Um, but this one night, this uh, Saint Nicholas uh, uh, takes his inheritance, three bags of gold, and puts it on the doorstep, and then leaves. And eventually the father finds out, apparently, uh, who it was that did this. But Nicholas swears him to secrecy. It's it's love that you could see. Uh, Something had happened. This is 300 years after the risen Jesus Christ in this one man's life. Something had happened that made him want to give it all away. That that, that knew it was better. There was more joy in his life for giving it all away. Um, I don't know if any of you are Winnie the Pooh readers. Um, I love Winnie the Pooh, and two of my favorite characters in Winnie the Pooh are the Heffalumps and the Woozles. Do you remember the Heffalumps and the Woozles? They're, if you haven't, if you're not familiar, they're figments of Pooh's imagination, or is it Piglet? Or I think both of them. They imagine the Heffalumps and the Woozles, and they kind of look like hybrids of tigers and elephants and pigs, if I remember correctly. And I'm thinking, you know, they've never seen these but they influence their lives just because they fear them. I'm thinking, I've never, I'm have never i not sure I've ever really seen the Christian life like I want to see it. Have you, ever, have you ever tried to be something you've never seen? You know, a lot of us come from broken families, and our aspiration is to be great husbands, great wives, great parents. Honestly, we have to say, I haven't seen it. You know, well, think about trying to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and you go, gee, I wasn't raised in a Christian family. Um, I haven't seen it before. It's kind of like trying to be a heffa-lump or a woozle when I don't, I don't really know what they are. I just kind of sketch it out of my imagination, but I don't know if that's right. And so a lot of us are going, I'm not sure if I'm living the life that I'm reading about in the Scripture. So the incarnation gives us something we can look at Jesus Christ. And that's important for us. But there's something else about the Incarnation. Um, because it's not just about me. I have to remind myself from time to time. Um, God isn't just about George. And, and I have myself in the center of the Georgiocentric universe. You know, everything revolves around me. So when I think of the doctrine of the Incarnation, I go, what does it mean to me? What does it tell me about me? And I go, wait, maybe I'm, maybe I'm limiting my perspective a little bit too much. That maybe the incarnation means something about about me and God's relationship with me, but also maybe it has implications for the world. It, maybe it's so much bigger than George. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. I mean, I think we would all agree that the incarnation is about the world. And, and God sends the Son because he has a dream for the world. God has a dream for the world. And he has a vision for it. And it hasn't been realized, you, you, you know, um, that for which the incarnation came has only begun. Jesus Christ hung on the cross. The, the Sisters of Charity, Mother Teresa's organization, I was reading, um, a lot of books have come out recently about Mother Teresa. Come Be My Light, I think is one of them. It talks about um, how she really had crisis of faith and doubts. But at the end of the book is an appendix and it lists... Um, their mission statement, I can't remember it exactly, but it's, it's basically to um, fulfill the purpose that um, kept Jesus on the cross. This idea that Jesus didn't die because it would make good Bible stories. God is very passionate about his dream. Very passionate. And, and, and it's not over. It's just beginning. Jesus leaves and there are 11 disciples. 11 apostles and a bunch of other, I mean, how many people are there? 1,000 in the first century um, as he's ascending to the Father? So that's just phase one. Now, phase two involves incarnation, but in a different way. And if you just look around the room, you're looking at phase two. And you go, man, that is scary. These people? Yeah, it's us. You've heard people say, we are Christ's body. Not really. Christ actually has a physical body, and that's Orthodox Christianity. We we believe Christ retains his physical body. He's ascended at the right hand of the Father. That's where he is. He doesn't lose his physical body, and that's an important bit of doctrine. You die, your body decomposes. We were talking last night as we were driving around about whether you need to be buried or, you know, the kids, you should have this conversation, what happens to me. So we're recording. So you can burn me up, and I'm happy to be... Cremated. We're talking about trying to explain to our younger daughter what we do with these things, you know. And I said, just put me in little ashtrays all over the place wherever you go, because we're talking about how much it costs money even to be cremated. And I go, no, just take the ashes and you know, drip a little. So the point is, okay, it's past my bedtime. The point is, your body, your body is a part of your redemption. Uh, You, 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 the resurrected body of Jesus Christ is. has implications for your resurrected body. So we're we're not physically the body of Christ, but there's a doctrine called the totus Christus, which is that the extended body of Christ is the church. And so Paul would, that totus Christus means the total Christ, the full Christ, and that's what we are, together with brothers and sisters around the world. What I want to do with you this evening is I want to read a text, uh, Luke chapter 10. If you brought a Bible, I would invite you to open it up. And I want to give you, Five principles. Uh, Because the question before us really is what is it like? What does it mean for us to be incarnate love for Seattle? What does it mean for convergence? What does it mean for us as any particular individual who might be interested in joining this this mission? What does it mean for UPC? What does it mean for the body of Christ uh, in Seattle? And there are five things that are really important. And I, I've been sharing these five things with, uh, with our elders, with our deacons. I've been shopping them around because as I'm getting, I'm getting to know UPC, I'm realizing this is not just Jesus' plan. This is, happens to be in the DNA of this community that you're a part of at UPC. If you go back through its 100 years history, you, you see these coming up again and again and again. Uh, so let me read to you uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. This is Jesus sending out the disciples. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others. There were 12, now 70 others, and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I'm sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. He sure was a motivational speaker, that Jesus. (laughs) Um, And here are the instructions. Verse 4 Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Kind of an interesting evangelistic strategy. Say nothing to anybody. Um, Those introverts are going, I think I could do this. Um, Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking, whatever they provide. For the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what's set before you, cure the sick who are there, and say to them this, here's your script. The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its street and say, uh, even... The dust of your town that clings to your feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. And then Jesus uh, finishes up, I tell you, on that day it will be more tolerable for Sodom uh, than for that town. If you don't know the story, it didn't go real well for Sodom. So five principles. Uh, five things to pay attention to. I, this gives me a lot of hope. Uh, um, the first thing is this, that you're sent with a message of peace. You and I, we, together, are sent with a message of peace. That's just easy to see that Jesus sends out this He says, peace. You go wherever you go, and you say, peace to this house. Uh, he's the king of all creation. He's the one who can make peace. And he intends to do so. And he sends us out as his ambassadors, letting everyone know that this is what's coming. This is what they can participate in. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, we get a little nervous here about the dust thing and the Sodom business. And I want to just um, I want to reassure you a little bit here. In chapter nine, they go through Samaria and uh, the Samaritans reject Jesus and his followers And James and John, you know, the sons of thunder. I guess they, you know, motorcycle gang in the background or something like that. They they say, okay, God, let's throw down the fire right now. Because they had read about Sodom and Gomorrah and they want the fireworks. And Jesus, what's he do? He rebukes them. So, you know, if you think there's something mean-spirited going on here, just read the chapter before. He says, you don't get it. We're on a mission of peace. We have a, a message of peace. That's what we stand for. But the reason why he gives this warning in the very next chapter is he goes, there is no other way than me to find that peace. And you, could, you, can, you can try, you could, if you could live a thousand years, you could try everything the world has to offer for peace, and you will not find it. So really what he's doing is he's warning um, now, the kingdoms of the world, in the same way that the prophets had warned Israel and said, you know, you can go to Egypt and, and uh, make alliances, you know, you can go after chariots and everything like that you want, but, as, but if you're going to fight with a sword, you're going to die by the sword. And if you're going to look for rescue, redemption anywhere else, then guess what? These international powers are just going to wipe you little puny Israelites off the face of the earth. I am your savior. So, th- so that's why he says, "You'll be honest uh, with yourselves and uh, about that. Um, be clear about that. That I am the only hope for the world." But so that's the first principle: we're sent with a message of peace. The second is this: <clears throat> you act out of an experience of God's peace in relationship with other Jesus followers. You act it out. You embody this peace in relationship with other Jesus followers. That is, it's something that people can see when they look at you and the person sitting next to you, or the person who goes with you on Saturday. The way that you relate to one another is missionally significant. See, so that's why Jesus doesn't work with individuals. He works with people in community. He works with the 12 Somewhere along the way, we pick up this idea that Christianity is about an idea. It's a notion. I think it's our enlightenment. You know, the enlightenment says it's it's all about sort of reason. And we think ideology is um, what Christianity is about. No, it's about relationship. It's about love. And so Jesus sends us out in relationship. Demonstrate love with each other so that people will know I'm calling them to my love. And so he sends them out in pairs. He doesn't have a lot of people to work with at this point. He's sending uh, 70 people out, or 72, 35 pairs, because the pair is the smallest unit of community possible. It's the irreducible minimum of community. Okay, the third principle. Jesus embeds your small community within the great community of the city. It's... Take this word "embed" from the you know the embedded reporters um, in the military now. Not really, not really part of it, but inside of it, uh, inside of a platoon, you know, a journalist. And, and Jesus seems to be doing something similar. He's embedding these pairs in community. Why does he tell them don't take any purse or bag, take no money? Any you know, ideas why he says that? Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Yeah, because maybe Jesus will provide for them in some way. Yeah, he also he also forces them to trust the people that he sends them to, right? I mean, I think, you know, if, if, if Jesus is sending John and, and me out on a mission trip, and we have an expense account and a credit card... Um, you know, we're going to we're gonna go into the center of town and, you know, we're going to look for some marginal people that would be willing to tolerate a couple of religious weirdos and, you know, approach them and give it a try and get rejected. And then we're going to go back to our hotel room and watch the rest of the game, you know, <laughs> and we're going to make sure we order pizza and have some beer. and It's going to be not that bad. Well, if Jesus sends John and me out there and he says, no bag, no gold, no credit card, um, eventually we're going to get hungry. And we're going to start to get really charming, <laughs> you know, and we're going to ingratiate ourselves to somebody who actually has real food. And, and, and we become dependent then, don't we, on these people? See, I think oftentimes we think that the mission is to um, come in here to the church and to reach out to the ab and see if we can grab somebody and pull them back over the fortress walls into our holy huddle again. And, and then we work really hard here to create community to build a new social network that we call the church. Jesus goes, that's not my project. Believe it or not, I already have all the social networks that have already existed. I own them all. I created them. They're all there. This incredible web of how all human beings are connected, it's God's idea. So he says, I don't really need you to do that for me. Thank you. Well, what I want you to do is I want you to go and recognize that you are invested in those social networks already. So I'm going to take your community, your pair, and I'm going to go embed you in community. And then what happens is, he says, don't go anywhere else. Don't pass, don't talk to anyone on the road. Just go into homes. And in the homes, you're eating food, you speak the word of peace. They watch the way you two relate to each other, and it's like nothing they've seen can't give an account for it except for the love of God. And they come to faith. Now, all of a sudden, the gospel is transmitted through all of these degrees of separation already existing in the social network. Jesus believes in Seattle. He says, I've already got Seattle wired. All I need is some fuses to be lit. All the relationships are already loaded. Do you know that um, Rodney Stark, who uh, wrote The Rise of Christianity, great little book, by the way, Rise of Christianity, easy read, UW, former UW professor, he, 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 um, he said, you know, when, when Mormons, turns out that the, the growth of Christianity um, is the same growth rate that Mormons in America at least 10 years ago were experiencing. In the early church, people wonder, how did it grow so fast? It's 40% uh, per uh, year per decade, 40% per decade is the growth rate. And Mormons have that same growth rate now. When Mormons make a cold call, that is uh, the Mormon missionary, Elder Johnson, knocks on the door, their response rate is one in 1,000. They have to talk to 1,000 people to get one convert. On the other hand, when the Mormon missionary comes into a home and sits with you and a friend, if you're a Mormon and a friend that you invite into the conversation, 50% of the time they get a convert. See the power of relationship that's not the power of Mormonism that's the power of relationship it's Jesus's idea okay number four you share God's peace with others out of your own unreadiness. I say that you and I are un- are unready we're not ready for this I'm not ready for this I don't know what I'm doing I don't know how I got to be a pastor um, you, you know you're not ready we're not ready these guys aren't ready they're they're these 70. This is only chapter 10. Luke has 24 chapters. They're just getting started with Jesus. They don't know who he is. They've not been trained. You and I live at a time, and we're, you, know, you are young professionals, been well-educated. You've got a high degree of competence in your field, or the field that you'd like to be working in or studying in. And we like to be competent. We're not comfortable when we're not competent. And, so, and Jesus knows this. So we don't get involved until we know the answer. Well, what if they ask me this? What should I say then, George? And then what should I say? That, you know, We want to know all the things that we, so we're comfortable. That's more about us than about the mission of Jesus Christ. You realize that? He tells you you're ready. You're as ready as you need to be. My plan is to use unfinished people. My plan is to use sinful, broken people whose lives are unwound. Not people who are ready. Bumbling people. I mean, you read the Gospels, you realize these guys are just like us. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, but, but everybody is sent. He says, you shall be my witnesses. When the Spirit comes, see, the, it's God's presence with you that makes your witness for Jesus fruitful. And that's what's so fun. It's about God. Okay, the final thing um, is this, and that's that people all around you, all around you are ready to respond to the message. And if you don't believe that, you're in good company. Jesus' followers didn't believe that either. But the way I know that Jesus asserts it in the face of their unbelief, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The image there is of a harvest. The seeds are already sown. Don't worry about that. You worry about the harvest. And when those seeds are ripe, I need to send out a whole lot of people. And, and you and I look around and you go, the problem today is that nobody wants to listen to me. Nobody's interested. Nobody cares about God anymore. And they would have said that same thing there. No one's open to this new teacher, Jesus. And he says, trust me on this. The harvest is plentiful. The problem is I don't have enough people who are willing to be sent into my mission. You leave the harvest to me in Acts uh, chapter 17 Paul comes into Athens and he says you know every one of us are made for God every human being the yearning that's so beautiful in the songs that we're singing Christmas time those are, it's a human yearning you don't you don't sing those songs with meaning because you're a Christian you sing those songs with meaning because you're a human being you're meant to to image God, to relate to God. That's true of your roommate. That's true of the person you ride the bus next to. That's true of your co-worker as well. They yearn. They're not going to tell you they yearn in some religious sense, necessarily. But they're yearning. And God is at work in their lives before you ever stepped into their life. He's he's been working on them. And he'll be working on them after you're out of their life as well. Jesus tells them, he sends them out to the places where he's about to go. Notice the continuity. I'm there before, I sowed the seeds, and I'll be there after. You're just one sort of touch point on this uh, expression of my love for these people. So let me just review these five. Uh, I don't have any kind of slick, mnemonic device or anything. But the first is that you're sent with a message of peace. The second is that you act out of an experience of God's peace in relationship. And then Jesus takes that relationship and he embeds it in existing community. In the city of Seattle, in our case. And uh, then you share God's peace with others out of your own unreadiness. Ready, set, go. Right now. And then, finally, people around you are ready to respond. I want to say, uh, just in in closing, a couple things. And that is that I'm really um, grateful for convergence. I think convergence represents something very, very important at this church. Um, As I... Get to know people in the church. I come across people who have been involved in communities like Convergence at UPC over the years. In fact, we used to have a group called Koinonia, and it's incredible how many people are are um, married, have kids, and families in this church who met through Koinonia. I think the guy who ran it, like its stated mission, was like, we, "We're going to get you married," which <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a little bit weird, but um, apparently, for a lot of people, it worked. And um, and there have been another number of these, a number of these groups of community. So it's, it's been a large church for a long time. But the power of the church hasn't really been necessarily in, you know, sitting in a pew, stiff-backed, listening to uh, a message. It's been the relationships that have been formed and that in which people discover the grace of Jesus Christ and then go running out into the city to make an impact. Just a, a couple of little, um, stories about that. Um, there was this group called Ambassadors, which was post college. I guess that's kind of like what convergence is. And uh, ambassadors, and then there was another group called Skymasters. And some of the el- oldest people in the church, you'll see them around, they were involved with Skymasters. And they go, hey, George, how come we can't bring back Skymasters? <laughs> um, and maybe we should bring back the Skymasters. I don't, I don't know the history there. But the Skymasters and the amb- they all sound like frequent flyer programs to me for some reason. It's interesting. <laughs> They they got together because there were these two guys. One was a doctor at a hospital that I don't think exists in Seattle. Maybe the name has changed. Um, And and these two guys bought, right after World War II, I think it was 1949, they bought a uh, mine-clearing ship. I don't know what they were thinking. They bought from the Navy a decommissioned mine-clearing ship. And and as I say, one of these guys was a doctor, and they they were aware that there were needs up and down the Canadian coast and Alaskan coast. There were these little isolated communities, and people were really suffering without medical care. And and so they said, what if? So they buy this boat, and uh, the Skymasters and the Ambassadors get together, and they do everything that they know to do. Grow vegetables, uh, can them or jar them. People are knitting blankets Everything that they can do and they know to do to stock, they, they refurbish this boat. Then they start running these mission trips. This is right out of UPC. It's about 50 years ago. I mean, I think that's really cool. And that's coming out of community. It's not, it's not the mission's pastor. It's not, it's not, it's not, no one's rallying this thing. It's just people like us just getting it done. God's using. Another story that, that I, I came across in, uh, the, during the Depression, they had this thing called Ladies Aid. And, uh, sounds kind of cool. And, and, and Ladies Aid, um, had, they said, you know what, we're growing, we're too big for just the church. Let's get out in the neighborhoods. They developed these Ladies Aid circles in the neighborhoods of Seattle, and they had eight of them. And what they would do is they would just meet the needs of the community during the Depression. Tangible relief. Can you imagine? What a kind of witness to Jesus Christ that is. I was, these ladies' aid circles, they grew. And they existed for 25 years. they would made such an impact uh, in their lives and the lives of the community because God was at work in them. Oh, by the way, the name of that boat was the Willis Shank. I don't know what that means, but that's just kind of cool. Wouldn't it be a good movie, The Willis Shank? Maybe you guys, Convergence, could uh, produce a movie. So um, I just want to invite you to be a, a, a community. A community that's sent by Jesus. A community that dares to show and express with imperfection the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, Thank you for doing that. Thank you for modeling that for the rest of the church. I want to multiply the the sub-communities of UPC. um, So you guys are on the front lines. You're teaching us how to do that together. Uh, And I look forward to being a part of that with you and getting to know you better. Do you have any questions or comments or responses we have? Two minutes before our closing song, um, but I so it didn't have to be related to um, our message tonight. But but uh, anything at all about the church or 101 year, yeah, just just celebrated the the 100th anniversary just before I got here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think there. I think there are a couple things going on there. Um, oftentimes, we feel uncomfortable with the idea that I'm the answer man. You're in trouble, and and God has put me in your life. Um, as God's gift to you. Don't you want to say it that way? You know, I mean, we, we kind of feel like that's the paradigm, and that makes us uncomfortable. That's not the way we think about our relationships with other people, and that's interesting to me, that that's not the way Jesus sends them out. He says, you know, you, you put yourself at their mercy. You make yourself dependent upon them. You give the, them the dignity of caring for you. So there's a real mutuality in that. And I think in in his saying, the harvest is plentiful, I think he's... He's acknowledging his work beyond the church. And so, you know, one of the doctrines of the Reformed tradition, and we're in the Reformed, what's called the Reformed tradition, is called common grace. And this is the idea that God is at work in all lives, in all of creation. It's grace because it's from God. It's a gift. No one deserves it. But it's common. We all get it. He makes the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous, Jesus says. And so... This doctrine, as it develops, means that um, people do good things outside of the church. Their work is really important. Their art is really important. Their science is really important. In some uh, traditions that don't speak about common grace, you wonder, if if, if the church is the only group of people that are doing things right, then why do you go to work with a group of people that are not Christians? And is that just like a total waste of time? We don't have to believe that. We believe what the people who are not Christians, different races, uh, eth- different ethnic, excuse me, um, religions or creeds or no creed at all, that God has given them the ability to think good thoughts and do good things. Uh, so we can enter into the cultures of Seattle and the, and the cultural endeavors of Seattle with a spirit of appreciation and welcome and uh, collaboration, collegiality, that I think is very freeing. Um, so Jesus says, yeah, I've got the commit, the community is there. I'm already at work in people's lives. Um, it's, it's not like you approach them as, um, you know, little mini messiahs. Step alongside of them, speak a word of peace in, the, in their lives. And, and I think it's interesting the way he says, the kingdom of God has come near to you. I believe it's come near to me. It's come near to us. And uh, what, what should we do about that? What does that mean? What does that look like? I think asking good questions goes a long ways. If you believe people have good answers, you can ask good questions. Okay. 30 seconds. Come on. One more question. Dad. What's that? You're welcome. I never turn down an opportunity to preach to somebody, <laughs> especially when they're my family. to see happening or have taken place? Well, I just connect to what I've been talking about tonight, because um, I can do that in 30 seconds, I think. Um, <laughs> one is everybody's in a small group. Another is all small groups are connected to big groups, and convergence is a big group. So that's why I talk about multiplying sub-communities. Big groups or networks of small groups. And then all of those small groups um, take this Take this mission of embodying Jesus's love. I think of them as activist communities in the city. Um, you don't need the church to tell you what the needs in your neighborhood are. What the needs? I mean, I don't know what the needs are in Fremont, or you know, um, or Ballard, or, or the East Side. I don't know, or or where you work. But you 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 know, and you start praying with three or four others who know and. Start figuring out, how are we going to address that? I'd love for us as a church to get behind that and, and give that lift more and more. So, well, listen, thank you very much for uh, your attention, for inviting me here, and for being a part of this. And I look forward to getting to know you. My office is right across uh, the hall there, and if there's ever an opportunity I have to get to know you better, you want to call or have a cup of coffee or just spend a few minutes together, I hope you'll give me a chance to do that. Thanks. Thanks, Matt Whitney. Very cool.